Hello, everyone. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Charlie Kwan, a seasoned corporate development executive and acquirer of numerous companies at Maxim Integrated, Cisco, and Intel Capital. Today, we're talking with Charlie about why it's important for founders to understand the basics of mergers and acquisitions, or M&A. But before we get into that, Charlie, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. This is kind of new for me, so hopefully everybody can just uh, kind of bear with me <laughs> as uh, I kind of do this for the first time. Yeah, well, we're expecting great things, so no pressure. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and maybe how uh, you know Dad? So Oleg and I, um, Dad Oleg, right? <laughs> um, he and I used to work at, at Intel. And um, this was right before in the, the first dot-com. And um, we just kind of hit it off. And we used to kind of go for coffee together. There was just a group of us that used to just kind of, you know, see eye to eye on things. And so ever since we kind of worked together, even since uh, we kind of went our separate ways, we still kept in touch. And, um, you know, we've all kind of gone our separate ways and really gone through a lot of different paths. Mm-hmm. And um, it's kind of interesting to to see how everyone just kind of ended up in different places. But, you know, back in like the 2000 or the early or the late 90s, we all kind of started at, at the same point. Yeah, just curious. Um, we'll be talking about M&As today, but what are you doing today? I'm at Maxim Integrated right now and doing corporate business development there. And um, we just announced in July that we would be selling our company to our competitor, um, Analog Devices. We still haven't closed a deal, so I can't really go too much more or into detail or talk about it much more than what's kind of out there in the public. But right now we're just in the period between announce and close. But during the five years, we just really kind of took the company to a lot of different paths. And ultimately, yeah, I think it's kind of interesting to see where we kind of ended up five years later having to sell the company. But the interesting thing is, is that I, you know, going into even for Maxim Integrated, it was, it was interesting that the whole industry was in a period of consolidation, mainly with the Avago slash uh, Broadcom guys starting to roll up the industry or, you know, some people might have issue with the, the term roll up, but that's the way I look at it because Avago Broadcom was really just an amalgamation of, of M&A transactions by Hot 10. And, um, and then from there, I think the momentum just kind of took it where you see like NVIDIA doing Millinox, you see um, AMD and Xilinx right now. I think they're making a little bit of progress. Um, but you see just all of semiconductors just kind of merging um, consistently. E- even Marvell, Marvell, which is also semiconductors, the CEO there actually used to be at Maxim. But he's kind of taken the whole inorganic path and really kind of applied it to Marvell, where they've kind of you know reinvented themselves ever since Starboard went there as an activist investor. So I am kind of new to all of this and the language and the terminology around it. And you said, I believe that, you know, Maximus, you're selling. Does that, and, and you can't say anything more, but does that mean it's an M&A? Is it getting acquired? And uh, maybe we can talk about M&As generally, but not this one specifically, because obviously it's still ongoing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can kind of talk about it in at, at high levels, right? 
And, you know, I'll try to keep it as general as where I, I might be referring to this. I might not be, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> right. But uh, let, let's see here. So uh, one of the misnomers, I guess, here, too, is that I said that we're being acquired by um, our, our competitor. Yes, we are. Technically, it's a merger. Um, they're basically going to be like two-thirds of the, the combined company. We're going to be about one-third, I think. Mm. So, I, I, you know, that's, that's public information. And um, so I, I think technically speaking, if people were at Maxim, they'd probably be saying that it was a merger. But at the end of the day, the, the surviving entity is going to be run by ADI. So the way I look at it is we're being acquired, even though it was a stock deal. Got it. So just to learn a little bit more about you and, and your career, how many M&As have you worked, uh, have you worked on so far? Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there, there's all manners. I mean, one of the other things that you want to kind of consider is, you know, our strategic investments M&As. I, to me, they feel almost like they're little M&As, particularly because I've been doing strategic investments for um, corporations. So... Mm-hmm. And then the other thing, too, is that they're all different kinds because I've also spent time on the sell side, too, in investment banking. And so, so you know, those, I feel like they're, in a way, not the, the same kind of M&A, even though they are, they are M&A transactions, because they're not strategic. I mean, from an investment banking standpoint, once a deal is, con- uh, is, is consummated, and the signatures are, you know, in place and closing happens, you know, you can really be completely removed from the actual assets that are being combined. So there's no like long-term thinking there. You know, you're only as long-term as when you're going to get paid. Which is when you sign that contract. Yeah. And whereas with a strategic investment, and, you know, it goes from integration and different companies have different amounts of infrastructure. Cisco, for example, has a huge infrastructure and um, they're, they work very, very closely with Accenture and um, almost to the point where this third, third party company is so involved in the integration process that, you know, it, it's kind of like old hat. They all know where to go. They might as well not be... Um, uh, I think it was a green badge if you're a temp and a blue mm-hmm. badge if you're a regular. Mm-hmm. I mean, these these people from Accenture might as well be Cisco employees, right? And then you have kind of smaller companies like Maxim, where depending on the, the acquisition and whatnot, you know, you really don't use outside companies. And for the types that we were doing while I was there, or, you know, still there technically, it's, you know, you do it yourself. And um, a lot of the tuck-in acquisitions require integration or uh, de-integration. I don't even know if there's a proper word for that because, you know, you don't want to call it disintegration because you're not, you're actually acquiring the company. You're not destroying (laughs) it. Right. Right. But the the de-integration, the the, the smaller companies, some of them are robust. They have different kinds of ERP systems. A lot of startups these days have SaaS-based. You know, like a NetSuite, which is um, geared towards um, smaller enterprises. But then again, you know, our back, our our, our uh, end systems are like SAP, and it's not very user friendly. Um, and SAP is not a SaaS model, as far as I'm concerned, right? I mean, I guess they have like SAP HANA or whatever, 
that they have like a SaaS system, but you know, now I'm starting to get a little bit beyond my own, you know, uh, you know, core expertise, but the, the, the systems are so disparate is basically the point. Right. Right. So actually you have a very interesting expertise then because you've seen this, uh, like you mentioned from the seller side, when you worked in investment banking and at Intel cap and, and past that you were more on the acquirer's perspective, which is kind of what we're going to talk about today. But could you just talk in broad strokes maybe and, and you know, tell me in the audience, what is M&A just all about in general and, and, and what are the general types of uh, mergers and acquisitions you might see or should be aware of? You know, the kind that I'm most um, close to or, you know, the, the kind that I see a lot of value in are the ones that you really kind of start off as investments and then you kind of grow with the company. Um, I think a lot of the times there are companies that just kind of go in with not the not the completely large kinds because those those are those are basically like almost mergers of equals, and so they they take on a completely different kind of um, complexity. But the mid-sized one, somewhere in between one of these like smaller smaller tuck-in types and um, mergers of equals, are really I kind of feel like um, unless you have a really really strong team that understands their their vision and roadmap, can really really get you down a bad path. Um, making the wrong acquisition. And so a lot of the, the companies that I've been a part of, they're not hyper growth companies. And I think that's a different kind of a flavor too. So there are companies like Facebook, where in the beginning, you know, you, you can even make a dis, you can even make an argument saying that they were doing defensive MAs to kind of keep fast competitors at bay. You can make that argument. But, but then there, there's older companies like Intel, where even when data leg and I were working at Intel, that's when people were talking about the death of um, microprocessors. And so at the time we were always kind of thinking, we're looking at like Lou Gertzner at IBM, where they changed their, their business model from hardware to services. Right. And then yet again, they, they failed to make another pivot. But Intel had made a pivot from DRAM to microprocessors for CPUs. And they said that, you know, with mobile and whatnot, that CPUs were going to die. They actually pivoted towards servers and that's been good for them, but they're having to pivot again right now. And and I think that's where they're kind of getting their lunch eaten by AMD and some other more nimble competitors. So I've always been kind of working on that side. So even with Cisco too, it's like I, I was at Cisco when, and they're still going through the transformation, but you know their 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 cash cow basically is routers and switches, right? And with software defined networks, they pivoted towards security. And from the outside looking in, you know, I, I think that they've made a decent pivot towards security, but they're not quite up there with like Palo Alto Networks and some of the other you know high flying cybersecurity guys. So that's kind of the angle. And I think that's kind of where uniquely where I, I've always kind of uh, worked with older curmudgeon companies, you know, it's like even with Maxim too, it's like, you know, you're, you're looking for kind of a pivot. Now it's a little bit harder in analog semiconductors. And I don't know how familiar people are. And most people aren't even in Silicon Valley because hardware is not sexy, right? And Silicon is not just regular like consumer hardware either. It's more like engineering hardware, which is even less appealing to most people in Silicon Valley. For sure. 
takes a lifetime to yeah. get interested. So we're, we're talking about M&As here. Why, why do you think it's important for founders to really understand at least the basics of M&A? I think one thing that the founders really need to know and understand is that different companies have different processes internally. And um, it's about managing expectations and realizing that each company is so very different depending on their level of expertise and what they actually have in-house, right? And with a lot of the smaller deals, it really doesn't make sense to hire an investment banker. And it's really not in the investment banker's interest to do smaller deals as well because they're just not going to get fees on it. So having worked at like a Merrill Lynch, for example, if it was too small, I mean, even if you wanted to do the deal, you just can't, right? In, in the meantime, I remember when we were at Intel and I was in the M&A team, and this is kind of more in the go-go days, you didn't even have to bring it to a, a, a full-on committee as so, so long as a deal was under $250 million. You can kind of go through an abbreviated process. Now, if you're at another company like Maxim, I mean, <laughs> $250 million deal is so large that like the board and everybody gets involved in it, right? So I think that's one thing that the, the founders really need to understand is that different companies are going to have very, very different M&A processes. And then there's smaller companies where they just don't really have a process. And so sometimes you feel, you know, you realize that a process is actually pretty streamlined with these guys because they don't have a lot of checks and balances. So for one of these acquisitions, how, how long does it really take? It's complicated. I imagine it takes a long time to work on these things. So from start to finish, how long would you say one of these acquisitions take? I would say that in general, you kind of look at deals in chunks, right? And so oftentimes anything that's around like a hundred million or less or something like that, it's all going to take about like six months. And this is really when you get fully engaged, right? Because there's a lot of deals where you're in touch with the, the management team and you're exchanging, you know, pleasantries, keeping tabs on them. And that can run for like a year before, you know, either party is really ready to feel comfortable with an acquisition, right? So it really doesn't happen very frequently where you meet a company and then you're ready to acquire them in matters of weeks. So oftentimes with startups too, and those are the ones that I focus on more, it's not going to be like these large public companies, but there's a lot of apprehension too, because the, the management team of these startups don't really know the process. They've been focusing on their startup. They don't want to get taken advantage of either, right? And they don't know how to kind of assess this M&A monster when they've been dealing with VC monsters, right? where they can get fully, they can get way too diluted. They want the founders to take, uh, take or give up a lot of equity into the company, right? So there's a whole bunch of different dynamics and then you're coming off from kind of like left field. And um, that's why for me personally, and I don't think that there's a one right way of doing it. I always feel like, you know, making a strategic investment and kind of growing with the company builds that kind of trust. And then it leads to the possibility of acquisition. And for me, if you do these smaller tuck-in acquisitions, I think um, the valuation is a little bit secondary, mainly because if the guys are actually successful, you know, they bet on themselves. And so you should be willing to kind of, to some degree, be willing to give the higher price. And it's not like overpaying for a public entity or a huge deal, right? 
and, and I think that's where sometimes like there there that that's where the whole issue of being penny smart, you know, dollar stupid kind of comes into play. With these smaller guys, you can overpay a little bit, but you have a different investment horizon, right? And so if you're trying to, you know, use the same kind of success metrics for these smaller companies as you are with, you know, larger acquisitions, you kind of stray away from the the whole point of actually acquiring the company. It doesn't mean that, you know, you pay them so much to the point where the founders actually don't deliver on the, the business case as you create them. But at the same time, like, I, I think they should be rewarded for their courage. And when you're buying a larger corporation, they, there's really not a, cur- a lot of courage there. I mean, they, a lot of the times the institutions are kind of these behemoths that kind of do their own thing. And the people are more like cogs, right? But these founders and these startups, you know, uh, it, it really takes on the, it really, really takes on the the personality of the co-founders and the people who are actually making serious decisions for the company. So I imagine if you are a startup, like getting acquired, the you know, it's like your, it's the first time, right? It, it, I think you said six months, but does it ever take longer than that? And then like, what's the longest, how do, how long do these kind of behemoth acquisitions take compared to that? Well, it also depends on how familiar you are with um, the company and the amount of diligence that it, that, that requires, right? And so with um, some of the, the smaller ones that I'm talking about, a lot of them can take longer because sometimes they don't have these robust uh, data rooms where all of their, their information, whether they're Series A or Series B, right? That, that's a whole other investment kind of an issue where if you are trying to acquire a company that's been invested with, um, you know, you're kind of your name brand VCs, they seem they tend to be a lot more better organized. So they have their data rooms already kind of set up as they were doing their institutional rounds of financing. But then there are some of these other companies where they have to create the, the material and put pen to paper because none of this stuff is actually available. That's why there's also the other issue of, are you only going to acquire companies that have institutional rounds or do you want to take on companies that are like barely beyond seat? And sometimes for companies like Maxim, you might want to take a chance on smaller companies because you're only basically looking at the IP and it's so specific to the product line that you want to use it for that you look at these smaller companies. So that's a metric that basically can attack on a good couple months. And then it also depends on the time of the year too, because especially around that whole October, November, December time period becomes a slippery slope. And so particularly with corporations, you know, it's funny how the last quarter can easily shut down because on one hand there's budgeting issues, right? My current company right now, we have an out of cycle kind of uh, fiscal year end, but if most, a lot of companies have fiscal year ends in January or December, right? And so they're closing their yearly yearbooks and, um, and then with the holidays, people start leaving, right? And with corporations, I, I know that there's a work issue, but like in investment banking, you're there. It doesn't really matter whether it's Christmas or not, but when you're at a corporation, people start leaving and they go on their vacations, right? And so corporations just generally just tend to work slower in general. And I've seldom seen regular corporations with corporate development teams 
because when you do a corporate development deal as a deal lead, you're basically pooling resources from other groups, whether they be a functional group or a business unit group. And this is all extra for them, right? And so you have a lot of different kinds of people on this team that are not like fully dedicated because they have a separate job and um, you're asking them to do diligence in a, you know, a technical capacity or something like that, right? Now, the legals and the lawyer guys, they're, they're a lot more like investment bankers, right? So they get the job done. But when you're circling into like the business units, you know, it's like, you know, I'm out for the last two weeks of the year. And there's also the shutdown. And then it, it, it becomes a big management thing for a corporate development guy because it never fails that people want to try to close a deal right before New Year's. And so those things always happen, but it's almost kind of um, pushing up against a, a mountain almost in a way, because you just know that you're going to just try your best, but good chances that, you know, you're going to have to leave everything for the first two weeks of January. And then of course, you know, for corporations, you're, then you're dealing with CES, right? So everyone's gone for two weeks. It's just those kind of things that can really add on a couple weeks. And the next thing you know, you know, you've gone basically <laughs> the amount of work that you might've done between like July and August or something like that, or even like um, August and September, once you start hitting that Halloween time period and you hit Thanksgiving and Christmas, it's a very slippery slope to January. Got it. Well, some good perspective there. Let's let's talk about the acquirer's perspective and M&A from, from the buyer side. What makes an attractive target when you're looking at companies? It really depends on the, I, I think for, it really depends on the, the characteristic of the acquiring entity, like the, the, the corporate culture of the company. There are companies that are actually going to be a lot more um, free and loose with acquisitions. And they think about the opportunities. That only goes so far because it's, I think everybody kind of knows the statistic that most of the M&As actually fail, right? There are companies where some of them, they're waiting for earnings, right? Or at least they want to see positive EBIT. And there are companies that are very skeptical about two, three year horizons and companies not meeting them, right? So it really depends on what's being more emphasized, the opportunity in the top line or profitability metrics and the path to profitability and, um, and break even, right? And so if you're f- focusing on that, you're going to miss out on a lot of deals. I can say pretty honestly or pretty easily with Intel, before the dot-com bust, we're losing deals left and right because we're doing all cash deals at that time. So by default, we weren't able to be as competitive on the valuation for potential targets because we were actually doing, we were, you know, cash, the all cash deals are very, very popular now, mainly because of the dot-com and then the financial crisis. So that became a lot more tangible, but back in the late nineties and the actual dot-com bubble bursting, which kind of took us to like 2001, I think. There were a lot of stock deals where people were taking their inflated currencies and using that to give astronomical valuations for targets. And the targets were very much happy to take that elevated valuation because it was a stock deal, because it was 
a like-for-like like asset as opposed to stock versus cash. So, so with the tuck-ins, a lot of the times in my current role right now, I would say that it really has a lot to do with um, it, it really has a lot to do with uh, the IP. I've been focusing on whether we can actually use that and design the IP, borrow it, and allow us to actually go into different markets. So it's really technology-based. And then there, there's actually different methods of actually acquiring that because you can always do like these development deals too and licensing agreements and then with an option to buy. So you, you can do that kind of setup where an M&A can, you know, good things can lead to M&A. But, you know, for me, with the tuck-in types, you're, you're generally looking at the IP and the technology itself. By and large, I would say that other than that, if you're actually going towards uh, an area that's not a core competency of yours, the most important thing is really the management team. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think a good example of that is kind of the, the Cisco model of the spin out and the spin in. And I, I don't know how much um, you're familiar with that, that, but, you know, so there, there are these um, individuals within Cisco, and I think they've all since left since the, the regime change from John Chambers. But what they would do is they basically fund a startup and they would take a bunch of people from Cisco and spin them out only to be reacquired once they've actually set up a tangible and viable business. And um, they would spin them back in, acquire them. And... Um, and they did that repeatedly. I forget exactly how many um, billion-dollar businesses that they built for for Cisco, but it was a repeat kind of a thing. Because I, I think the the value there is is that there are certain rigors, or it's not even rigors. I'd say rigidity to certain organizations that don't allow innovation to really kind of occur. And so they're best done outside of the organization. Intel was notorious for that too. Whoever they would acquire, they just massage them to the death to death. And Intel did that a lot because we're always kind of looking at software opportunities when I was there. And inherently the culture clash was just something that Intel just couldn't get over for and I don't know if they've still gotten over it yet, but hardware and software, particularly in the, the semi-space, just doesn't work out very well. At least history would say so. I'm not saying that it's impossible. So you were at a big company, Intel. Can you talk about how you might plan like an M&A strategy from, from that point or that perspective? It really has a lot to do with partnerships with um, the business unit. So I know that each company usually goes through its different variations of ebbs and flows. So sometimes you really be top top down, top heavy, where an executive might have a saying into a direction that they want to go. So they'll go and acquire a company. But by and large, most of the deals, you, you need to have some kind of structure where you need a BU champion, right? And the GM really needs to support and champion your deal for any deal to go through. And so it really it involves getting to know their roadmap and how they envision their franchise if you want to if you want to think about it that way so each gm is going to have like their technology roadmap and they're going to see gaps in that technology roadmap and they're basically relying on the corporate business development or the m a team to go seek out opportunities to fill those gaps 
organically or inorganically. And therein lies a lot of the other interesting dynamics there too, because there are certain business units where they're more than happy to look for inorganic opportunities, but then there are other business units where it actually becomes kind of a competition between the, the M&A team and the business unit, even though you're kind of supposed to be swimming in the same direction where they want to actually develop it or internally because they feel like it might look badly on them if you know you bought them externally. But then there are companies that are perfectly fine with that and there's no stigma attached with it. What's the difference there between organic and inorganic? So in, in that case, I'm thinking more along the lines of like a maxim where resources are more limited, right? Whereas with a Cisco or an Intel, I mean, they just have cash to burn basically, right? And that's why I think that they've been so free with a lot of the the ways that they actually spend their money. But at Maxim, for example, if you're looking for some kind of development for an IP, the nature of analog semiconductors is a little bit more touch and go. So uh, a lot of the times things work on paper, but don't work in real life. And so when you actually find a company that's actually able to commercialize things and deliver on what they're able to do in a small form factor or whatnot, something that actually can be replicated in millions of parts, then you kind of have to go with that, that needle in the haystack, right? So you want to cultivate that relationship with them. But when I'm talking about like inorganic versus organic, anything that's M&A is inorganic because you're actually buying it from the outside. And organic generally means, you know, it's developed internally. At Cisco, it was not uncommon for certain business units to feel like, you know, how can we go back to our GMs or, you know, the guy who's running the business unit and say that they're doing the right thing when they didn't develop it. And because we didn't develop it internally, we had to go get it outside. That's a little bit of insight into strategy. Once you've figured out your strategy and kind of what types of companies you're looking at, how do you actually pick among your targets and select, you know, one over, over the other? So I think that's kind of like the process that you have to go as a, as a corporate development professional is that you just have to get around and start to get to know certain people. And the trick there is really you don't know where these people are you just have to kind of spread the seeds around and then see what is what you can go back and cultivate later on. You know, there, there was a guy that, for example, your dad and I knew when we were back at Intel and he's gone on to do a couple startups. And only when I was at Maxim, we were looking at him. But it's something that you cultivate a relationship and you feel comfortable enough to go back to this person after several years of maybe keeping in touch, you know, loosely, or there's people that, you know, you meet at like, you know, conventions or whatever, or even at CES. And then only two or three years later, a conversation happens internally where, okay, this actually kind of fits the bill. So as a corporate development person, you just kind of have to go out there and spread out a net and see where you think the puck is going to go. And you have to be prepared for that. I think that there's some lazy ways of doing it where you know you wait for the investment banker or somebody else to come out. Where I find that is that if it's really a good asset, then you're really not going to get the best price because you're going to have multiple bidders on that. But when you're going through a strategic alternative is banker talk or a company's kind of messed up and now we need to just kind of liquidate and bail wherever we can. Sometimes, you know, at that point, you're looking at 
a broken asset. And that's why they're using investment bankers for an exit. So you have to be careful about that as well, too. And when you're analyzing these potential targets, can you talk about some of the analysis and techniques that you might do if, if this is your job? Yeah, I mean, so there's always valuations. It's always going to have to be a combination of transaction comps. And, um, and these days, a lot of the times, it's just revenue multiples and whatnot, right? Now, it, that also depends on what kind of, what kind of uh, inorganic strategy you guys have. There are companies that only want to look at companies that are more mature, that are like in Series C or Series D, right? And at that point, they should be very much closer to showing some kind of profit level. And at that point, a DCF actually does make sense. But prior to that, you know, if you're only look, if you're looking at seed stage companies or pre-Series A, and, and again, you know, Series A can mean a lot of different things. I've seen a lot of companies where Series A is just a such a large amount that it really doesn't make a lot of sense for it to be a series a but then you also have a lot of series a that feel a lot more like seed rounds because the company is just not as mature but if you're looking for established businesses and financial and profitability metrics are more important then you're going to be waiting for companies that get to like the series d series e series f maybe that they're, they're looking to just on the cusp of going public then at that point, a DCF actually makes sense. And then you can also do different kinds of expectations where you can kind of see what the, the, the multiple increase from you know, Series A to Series B and Series C is and kind of project out what the expectations could be in a potential next round. But with the startups too, you also have to look at the, the environment too. If you're trying to buy a company during like the SPAC craze, there's a lot of companies that out there that are just based on an idea and they're getting extraordinary valuations. So you want to try to avoid those spikes because some of these assets, you know, as they kind of languish in the public market could be open for acquisition later on. And, but right now it's, it's really hard to tell which ones are really quality and which ones aren't. I can tell you that there, there are companies that are like, you know, 15, 20 years old that, you know, kind of wait, they made their way through a SPAC. And um, I don't know what allows them to be this hyper growth IPO company that, you know, they weren't able to really accelerate and grow and scale in the previous 15 years of their existence. But a lot of the times it's just not going to. But then, you know, the expectation that you grow your company, like, you know, anywhere from 20 to 50% every year, you know, depending on what kind of hyper growth your area you're talking about, or what kind of um, TAM and SAM that you're fabricating, you can come up with any kind of growth scenario. But there's a lot of good businesses where it's profitable, it's just not going to grow at that. And the expectation to grow every year like that is kind of ridiculous. I know, yeah. Can you talk about the importance of growth versus profitability when you're when you're looking at acquiring a company? Because I think you're hitting on kind of a key point. So that, again, really kind of depends on the, the corporate culture of the company that you're working for. And so there are companies that they are just looking for the highest top growth, right? And the, the highest growth on the top line. And, um, and it really depends on what you can get away with and what the expectations are. I'm not saying this about Amazon, but if Amazon were to take huge risks, and I'm not talking about MGM or, or Whole Foods. But if they took on a tech company that was not as profitable, that, that doesn't mean anything to them as much. Um, 
because the expectation is that you don't have to be profitable at Amazon because you're going for hyper growth. Same thing with probably like Facebook. Apple also has such a huge business and a huge franchise in all different areas that they can take on AI companies and do aqua hires or they don't have to be profitable because the, the whole infrastructure of this behemoth of a company is more than able to just kind of digest all of that. But a company like, like Maxim cannot do that because dividends are actually important at a company like Maxim. Our investor base, like T. Rowe Price, is the, the largest shareholders are like these you know, more conventional money managers. And so they expect a certain kind of cash flow and a certain kind of dividend and a certain type of buyback. So if you're going to go out there and start diluted, doing transactions that are dilutive, it's going to show a little bit more. So it really depends on the expectations. For Maxim, yeah, that's very important. It's got to be a good mix. And, um, and we're servicing. We're kind of like on the servicing end of a lot of the, the, the hardware and technology and the, and the goods that are out there. So we have to be very targeted. Our um, design cycles you know, generally require like a two to three year lead time. So for example, when we're doing business with um, certain hardware companies, you get designed in, but you, know, you have to wait for the next cycle of the product upgrade, right? And that requires a couple years lead time. So it's a completely different kind of way of looking at acquisitions and what makes sense for the company because you need to you need to make money off of the acquisition. There has to be a direct correlation to some kind of profitability metric and how it expands a certain product line because you're not you're not the ultimate consumer because at the end of the day, Apple is a consumer to a lot of vendors, right? And and same with um, other companies that are closer to the consumer. So for example, if you're like in the network infrastructure side, so much of your sales and your, your acquisition targets are geared towards what service providers are going to do and their network upgrades, the infrastructure spend and CapEx, right? There, there are instances where if uh, AT&T and a Verizon reduces their CapEx spend, you know that that's going to impact what your planning is going to be for next year because they're the end, they're kind of like the customer, right? So there are just so many different dynamics. I, I, I would say that if you're a corporate development guy, you really have to know where you stand on the food chain and how the cash flows from the consumer all the way to you know, the material guys. And if you understand that, then you should have a better understanding of what you can go after and what you cannot. So next, and thank you for breaking that down, Take us behind the curtain of valuation, because I imagine it's a tricky subject. You're assigning a value, you know, you're assigning a number value to, uh, and two people, two parties have to kind of agree. So when you're negotiating valuation, can you take us through how founders should approach that kind of problem and how they should negotiate valuation? There's a real practical nature to all of that. And so you can look at it from like a discounted cash flow standpoint. But at the end of the day, we're kind of in this environment in technology where it really is con- it is really contingent on revenues and how it's projected outward. Because a lot of the startups, and, and again, I'm looking at I'm I'm, ta- I'm thinking about like startups that like your mid-sized startups and not the ones that are like the hottest startups around. It really 
it really has to do with kind of like doing a comparison about what deals are happening, you know, at what price. And there's just a multiples approach to it. What's happened in your neighborhood per se, and where certain other companies that you compare yourself to have been taken out. And then you just have to basically come up with several different metrics, whether they be revenue driven, profit driven, DCF, and then you really kind of have to come up with a football chart, football field to kind of look at the different metrics. And then from there, you're going to have your upside, your mid case, your management case, and then your downside case. And you need to kind of circ- you know, kind of triangulate to what valuation kind of comes up that, that kind of encompasses the different kinds of perspectives that each valuation method entails. And from there, you also have to see at that point, is it worthwhile for your internal team to acquire this? And can they actually turn that into revenue for their business unit? And it's just a constant, it's almost like a circular loop where you just kind of have to do iterations to see what you feel comfortable. That's how the buyers are approaching it. So from that standpoint, I don't know how much more insight that I can provide for a potential seller or, or a CEO of a startup, but those iterations are what's going on in the background at the acquirer side. Can you talk about some of the red flags that might kill M&A deals? Oftentimes it's the projections. It, it's really, yeah, it, it really has a lot to do with the projections for me at least. Yeah. The projections not like adding up to what you actually go find or what do you mean by that? The projections and the forecast just really don't make any sense. And what they say that they're going to be able to do doesn't quite make a lot of sense. They would never be able to grow into that valuation. And oftentimes, too, you can you can really kind of tell when a founder hasn't really been thinking about it enough. And if they haven't been thinking about it, then that's a serious red flag because this is their business. And you would expect them to... It might not be in the form of a document that's already well-prepared or part of the board documents, but those are, that's information should, that should be presentable to an, a potential acquirer. Sometimes it has to do with personality too. Some of these guys are such big picture guys that, you know, they feel like they don't need to tell you that. They, you should just take their word for it. And for me, I'd just rather not go down that, that, that path at all because there's too many shysters that are out there where you know they, they just put on a really good talk and i think that's part of the reason why that i think that that's part of the reason why that you know there's there's these serial entrepreneurs in silicon valley because they know that these people you know what their metal is right so they can create a startup and then they'll because of who they are and what their animal spirits are They'll go out there after they sell their company, they'll go start up another one because they don't want to be in a big, large company. I think that's a whole other ball of wax there too, because there's a lot of people in Silicon Valley where they don't want to work for an HP. There are these old dinosaur type of companies that are out there that it's a matter of knowing the system as opposed to understanding the the actual business that that trumps anything else. And they just couldn't. And you look at the guy who started Zoom. You know, he was part of the collaboration team at Cisco. And um, 
you know, I don't know what um, the guys at WebEx were thinking and, and the teleconference guys, but I'm sure why didn't why didn't Cisco have that kind of success with um, why couldn't they keep that that internally and harness that that kind of creativity and, and market penetration through WebEx? Why did it have to happen that way? But there's a lot of venture capitalists that are out there that kind of make their money off the same guys because they just know that they can go out there and do it again and again and again, right? And if I had to bet, I would bet with those guys too. But if you're doing it strategically, you can't just follow these these founders and you know kind of ride their coattails over and over again. Oftentimes, you know the the, the animals that you're dealing with are so different. But there, there's a lot of people who actually put up a really good talk and just never fulfill. They don't even come close to their milestones. That's interesting. I, w- I want to ask one more question about closing. Uh, can you talk about escrows and earnouts and the rationale behind those? That's the other thing too, is that a lot of the times with these startups, you're going to have to have milestone bonuses attached to the deal structure. I mean, it, it's just kind of a trust factor, right? It just basically comes out to, from a buyer standpoint, the way I look at it is, if you can hit those milestones and you can, if you have, if you have the confidence to put it in your projections, you should be able to back it up, right? And um, and I, I think it's just really as simple as that. You should put things into escrow, and um, the company's willing to give it to you so so long as you're not you're not being overly aggressive because you should want to have some kind of incentive to do what you say that you're going to do, right? And so I I think that's a very fundamental part of a deal structure because this is not the end goal. And as a founder, you're such a a critical part of the, the asset that if exit was your final goal, then from a buyer standpoint, you might be going, you might be, you might be taking on the wrong asset because that's really kind of the starting point for a lot of, you know, strategic buyers that are out there because this business needs to scale at that point. And um, yeah, a lot of the times too, with good intentions, you know, there, there's just a lot of different issues that come up and the business actually doesn't come to fruition. And um, a lot of it could be, there can be so many different issues. Why, um, once you actually consummate a deal, you know, what kind of barriers and what kind of hiccups happen along the way? It's probably not a very satisfactory answer, but but yeah, that's kind of a, a difference in opinion or a point of view that, that arise. Okay, Charlie. Well, before we get out of here, uh, what's the best way for the listeners to reach you if they have more questions on M&A? I guess I could be looked up on my LinkedIn profile, and that's probably the best way. And you can probably just look up uh, Charlie Kwan and do a number of different, you know, company additions like a Maxim at the end or something like that. And I'm sure you'll find um, find me on on LinkedIn. Um, that's probably the best way to kind of reach out. We're going to end the show there. Yeah, Charlie, thanks for coming on. We appreciate your time and and uh, sharing kind of your expertise with the listeners. So thank you. No worries. Thanks.